you know, once I've written this, I was like, oh, I, I should share this with people. I, I post it to a, a FreeBSD mailing list saying, you know, I've, I've written this tool and I'm, I'm building updates if anybody wants them. And uh, somebody said, you know, you, you should write a paper about this and bring it to a BSD conference. So I ended up going to BSDCon 2003 and uh, presenting a paper about FreeBSD update. At which point, of course, I, I meet all these other FreeBSD developers. I, I meet the, the FreeBSD security officer, Jacques Vitrine. Um, and, you know, everybody's very, really encouraging. Um, so at that point, I started thinking, well, okay, maybe I should actually join the FreeBSD team. <laughs> uh, and yeah, uh, January 2004, I did. With me on the show today is Colin Percival. Colin is the founder of Tarsnap and a FreeBSD developer. Colin, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Happy to be here. So everyone loves a good origin story. So I think we should start the, the conversation there and ask, when you were younger, do you remember the first computer or first electronic thing that you were able to use that really excited you and got you interested? Uh, if you're going to be as broad as the first electronic thing, uh, that would probably be a handheld calculator. Um, I think it was Christmas just before I turned three, might be my third birthday, um, but sometime around that point, uh, my grandparents gave me a calculator as a gift, and the way that kids that age can be. I got very fixated on it as a toy. Uh, of course, back then, 37 or so years ago, electronics wasn't quite as fast as, as it is now. Uh, and so I would play with it, punch in random numbers, you know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and I would try to figure out the answers before they came up on the display of the calculator. So that Got me very good at doing mental arithmetic at a very young age. Um, <laughs> I, I can't really give much credit to that for getting me into computers. So I, I mean, it it probably helped to stimulate my interest in mathematics, um, which was furthered by my mother being a previously being a, a high school mathematics teacher before I was born. Among my my earliest memories, uh, crawling up beside her while she was marking. Uh, IB math exams and having her explain to me what all these, I mean, high school graduation <laughs> exams, but uh, explaining the, the mathematics to me as best you could with your three or four year old at the time. Com as far as computers go, um, my father was quite early in getting involved with computers. He was a chemistry professor at the local university and the university had a, a program where they would uh, subsidized computers for the faculty members so that they could work from home and dial into the university to do their research. So I would see him working at the computer and occasionally when he wasn't working we could play some games. Uh, so I, I, I got started the way that a lot of kids my age did with there is a computer in the house and it is a place you play, can play games. Uh, a lot of my ability to spell Difficult English words came from playing games like King's Quest and Space Quest. Um, I remember a couple of years ago talking to a, a friend of a similar age who, who mentioned that 
one of the the first questions that he had to ask his father was, "How do you spell search body?" Uh, you know, this is going back to Space Quest, where you you start on a, a space station, you have to to find key cards and so on 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 the dead bodies of your um, comrades. But yes, it, it was a case of there was a computer in the home, and initially it was just something I could play games on. Okay, so you first get exposed by a calculator, which you have fun with. You then get exposed to computers and playing games and having fun with it. Was there a point when it transitioned from just being something that was fun to I actually want to learn more about how this works and to, to try to learn more of the deeper side of what was going on? Yeah, so I, I, that would probably be um, thinking back uh, grade five, six, something like that. Um, I, I was... Uh, interested in fractals at the time and I wanted to write a program to draw the Mandelbrot set and of course you know computers at the time not all that fast this was well my, my first computer was a 386 SX um, 16 megahertz and uh, I, I needed to learn more about the machine in order to be able to draw things faster um, and it got to the point of of uh, writing assembly language code. Um, the, the the to calculate the Mandelbrot set, you need to do a lot of multiplications. And I figured out that I could do fixed point sixteen bit arithmetic. Uh, and instead of doing using the multiply instruction that was quite slow, I I could use lookup tables to which stored the values of of squares of of integers um, in the fixed point arithmetic I was using, um, so I, you know, I, I was I was trying to shave off every clock cycle I could, and of course to do that you need to um, learn a lot about how the machine works. Yeah, especially with the older systems, the fact that they didn't run as fast. It, I mean, every clock cycle we think now to oh, well, a clock cycle really isn't that much of a big deal, but it really was back then at the speed that things were running. Oh yeah, and you know I, I had a, a VGA monitor, so that's six forty by four eighty. And of course, calculating Mandelbrot set, you're doing something for every pixel on the screen. So, yeah, you've got 16 million cycles per second, but then you ought to do something 250 or so thousand times. Um, it it adds up. Uh, you 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 really do want to make it as fast as you possibly can. So, would you say that was your first real exposure to getting into programming? Um, yeah, so in, I think it was grade one, uh, my parents introduced me to Logo. That's this system where you've got a, a turtle that you give instructions to crawl around the screen, either lowering your pen or raising it, depending on whether, whether you want to draw behind you. Um, but I I was never really all that excited about it. It was, I, I, could, I could use it. It was easy to understand, but never anything that I, I spent a lot of time on until... Um, yeah, drawing a metal rod set, that was, that was the first thing that, that really interested me. Okay, so to kind of shift gears a little bit, um, when did you first become aware of kind of the open source concept of sharing the source code to programs? Um, yeah, I, I actually, I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, of course, growing up as kids, uh, you 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 share software that you have illegally. Um, you know, some somebody gets a copy of a Pascal compiler, and then pretty soon you all have a copy of a Pascal compiler installed. Um, 
but uh, in terms of a, a philosophy or the idea that people publish code deliberately with the intention that people are sharing it, um, I, I would I would have to guess that it was after we started using it. Um, so open source really came into the home uh, when we got our first cable modem. We had a permanent internet connection. Um, and of course, we all wanted to share it. Um, we had already wired the house so that we could all access my father's printer so that we could print off our homework assignments. Uh, but of course, back then, Windows did not support sharing an internet connection. So uh, my brother actually um, figured out that there was this thing called OpenBSD that he could install onto an old computer we had and uh, use that to share the internet connection. Um, and at, even at that point, I, I wasn't really involved until sometime later. I, I don't actually remember exactly when, maybe a, a year after that. For some reason, my brother wasn't around when the computer broke and needed to be reinstalled. And I couldn't figure out how to install OpenBSD, but I could figure out how to install FreeBSD because sysinstall, that was a lot easier. Uh, so in a sense, I am a FreeBSD developer because I could manage to use sysinstall. I, I may be the only person who uses or develops FreeBSD because of sysinstall, but there it is. <laughs> You, you use FreeBSD, you get it installed. How long was it until you thought, hey, there's there's some, there's a way that I can contribute back or there's something here that I'm using, but there's this little tiny piece that I'm, I can maybe make a little better. Right, so there's there's another step in between there. So I, I, was, I was using FreeBSD um, just to share the internet connection around the home. Um, but while that was going on, uh, I was going to university and I started this project to calculate pi. And um, there was a, a new method of calculating pi that rather than calculating sort of all the digits starting at 3.141, um, you could sort of jump out into the middle of nowhere and calculate a few bits of pi. Um, it happened, this was discovered at the local university, so I had, I had met the people involved um, and uh, they had they had set a few records, sort of, it was also, also a lot faster, um, this method. Um, so they, they had set a few records, but I thought, you know, I, I'd like to set my own record using this method. Um, so I put together this project and I, and I asked people around the world to help me calculate this. It, it was a, described as an embarrassingly parallel computation. So um, if you remember the old um, desk cracking um, project, you know, you, you could be assigned as a bunch of work and then just you know, work offline even and then send the, the results back a couple of weeks later. Um, so I set up this project and set a few records calculating pi. And then uh, I, I finished my undergraduate degree and I was looking at going off to do a, a graduate degree. And I was interested in taking this general approach of having work distributed around the world using spare computing power and applying it to more interesting problems. So rather than just the embarrassingly parallel problems, uh, problems where you would need to have people doing compute and then sharing information with each other, intermediate results, doing some more computations, sending more data around. Um, and so I, I started writing code for this, um, sort of distributed supercomputer. I, I 
described it as. Um, and of course, you need to have something central that's organizing this. And I started thinking, well, if I set up a system like this and people are, you know, I was hoping thousands of people would be running code that I give them, um, downloading new code regularly if I needed to have you know, some new primitive operations they could do for me. Um, the security of their systems would depend on the security of the system that I have organizing everything. And I thought, you know, this, this kind of makes me a target. I need to make sure that system is as secure as I can possibly make it. So, you know, FreeBSD was the best thing that I was familiar with. I mean, I wasn't going to put it on Windows, of course. So I, I get a system running FreeBSD. And then, of course, every month or two, there's security advisories coming out. And I was a very new FreeBSD user at the time. And, you know, I get this email saying, here's a link to download the patch. And that's basically all it said. So I, I look at the FreeBSD handbook and it talks about how to rebuild the kernel and how to rebuild the world. And, you know, you have to build world before you can build kernel, but you have to install the kernel before you can install the world. And then there's this, this merge master thing in there as well. And I was just like, this, this is way too difficult for me to manage. You know, I, I've never managed a server before. I need to write a tool to make it easier for myself. So I wrote FreeBSD Update because I, I, I had used Windows. In fact, at the time I was writing that, I still used Windows on the desktop. And I ran Windows Update all the time. And of course, it just downloaded binaries and installed them for me. So I thought, you know, if I can, if I can take that experience that I have with Windows Update and make something equally easy that even I can use to keep my FreeBSD systems up to date, um, then, then I can manage to do this. Um, so I got to work, and the, the first version of FreeBSD update was actually a make file. Uh, after trying that for a few months, I realized uh, a shell script is actually a much better idea. So I turned it into a shell script. Um, and uh, you know, once I'd written this, I was like, well, I, I should share this with people. I, I post it to a, a FreeBSD mailing list saying, you know, I've, I've written this tool and I'm, I'm building updates if anybody wants them. And uh, somebody said, you know, you, you should write a paper about this and bring it to a BSD conference. So I ended up going to BSDCon 2003 and uh, presenting a paper about FreeBSD update. At which point, of course, I, I meet all these other FreeBSD developers. I, I meet the, the FreeBSD security officer, Jacques Vitrine. Um, and, you know, everybody's very, really encouraging. Um, so at that point, I started thinking, well, okay, maybe I should actually join the FreeBSD team. <laughs> uh, and yeah, uh, January 2004, I did. So obviously, uh, FreeBSD update was very well received. Did you expect it to be as well received as it was? Uh, yeah, I, I would say. Um, you know, I, I, in addition to being easier to use than building from source, uh, it was a lot faster at the time. Th these days, actually, it, it has much less of a performance benefit just because our systems are a lot faster. Although LLVM does do its best to get rid of that performance benefit of compiling. Um, you know, the, the, the race between building faster computers and building slower compilers keeps on going. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was easier to use. It was faster. It even used less bandwidth, much to my surprise. Um, it turned out CVSUP, which people were using at the time, um, needed quite a lot of bandwidth just to download the, the source patches. And um, 
thanks in part to the the binary diffs I was using, uh, the downloading the binaries was less bandwidth than that. Which, of course, these days, if you say, yo, you managed to update your system in using two megabytes of bandwidth instead of four megabytes of bandwidth, who cares? But yeah, at the time, there were a significant number of FreeBSD users who just had dial-up connections. And if you're talking 56 kilobits per second, 7 kilobytes per second, 420 kilobytes per minute, uh, yeah, you're looking at 5 minutes instead of 10 minutes of, of downloading updates. That, that's significant. Yeah, my, uh, my first Linux box was a Slackware box, and I remember at times trying to download Source to be able to build stuff. Because at the time when I was using it, there wasn't really a, a good... Well, there wasn't a Slackware update. No one had written it yet. So you had to pull down the source and build stuff. And yeah, just downloading the source took a while if you were getting a lot of it. Because at the time, I think I think we had a, like a 14.4 modem. So you know, it, it takes a while to pull that stuff down. So any speed up that you can get in that is really important. Now, when you joined the FreeBSD project and you started assisting, what then led you to joining the security team? Well, actually, it was FreeBSD update. Um, once I was, uh, well, actually, even before I was a FreeBSD developer, I, I asked Jack, a FreeBSD security officer, hey, is there any chance I can get these updates so that I can have the the binary updates built before the, the announcements go out? Because, you know, it, it took a few hours to, to build the updates. Um, and the answer was no, no, you, you need to be part of the security team to do that, to, to get access to those. Um, but as soon as I was a FreeBSD developer, I emailed them and said, yeah, I'm a developer now, so can I join the team and start building these in events? Um, so yeah, I, I joined the security team just a couple of weeks after I became a, a FreeBSD committer. Uh, and then, you know, once I was on the mailing list and saw discussions about draft advisories and so on, I started looking at them and, oh, you know, yeah, it started with noticing typos and grammatical errors, and then I start looking at the patches and, you know, are you sure this is really right here? Uh, then at some point, Jack was said, you know, Colin, how about you just write this advisory for us? And yeah, it just sort of moves on from there. In, uh, in the FreeBSD project, or just generally in the larger BSD and open source community, are there individuals that you would say helped kind of shape your views of open source? People who shaped my views of open source... Don't really think so. I mean, there, there, there are certainly people who um, contributed a lot to my uh, involvement and understanding of FreeBSD in particular. I mean, my my mentor Robert Watson and of course Jack Ovidine I mentioned um, as security officer. Um, yeah, I, I I can't really pin down where and and when my views of open source started or came from. Um, I mean, I, I'm definitely in the BSD camp of, uh, you know, it makes sense to share code as widely as possible. Um, I mean, a lot of that is, it comes from talking to people at conferences, hearing from the companies that are using FreeBSD and contributing back, not because they have to, but because it just makes sense. They they don't want to be carrying around a whole bunch of patches themselves. On the... On the conference front, because you just you brought that up again, I've always been a strong proponent of going to conferences, even if, if you're not a developer, because the interaction that you'll get at a conference, you, you can't get that kind of interaction and communication just over IRC or you know over an email chain. And I found that I come away from conferences with a greater 
not just understanding of the technicalities of, of the code, but also understanding how much other people are really committed and enthusiastic about the project. Do you think, I mean, obviously right now with COVID, all conferences are online, but do you think that there is a, a, a definite benefit to those in-person meetings with other people that use the same software? I, I think there is. I, I don't think that there necessarily should be. I, I think one of the largest benefits of conferences is that people feel more comfortable in person just going up and, and asking a question. Um, my, my inbox is open. I, I am, you know, if somebody has a question about, say, running FreeBSD on Amazon EC2, which is a lot of what I've been doing in FreeBSD recently, um, you know, I, I am very happy to receive questions. I, I, I will answer them. Uh, but very few people actually send me an email with questions. It, when I've gone to conferences, though, people have no hesitation coming up to me. I, I, okay, I, 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 I should maybe say some people have hesitation, but there are, there are many people who do not have any hesitation. And so I get more people coming to me with questions at a conference than I will over email or IRC for the entire rest of the year. I don't know what it is about humans that we're more more comfortable asking a question in person. Maybe people don't want to put things in writing. Um, maybe seeing someone physically makes them seem more human. I, I don't know. But there's there's some psychological thing going on there, which which means that people are more comfortable coming forward and asking questions. Uh, yeah, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have this weird psychological bias and we wouldn't necessarily need conferences. You know, people could just put up their own videos on YouTube and if they have a question, email the, the person who put up the video. But for whatever reason, the way that humans are wired, uh, conferences definitely help, yes. Yeah, I can, I can confirm that you are definitely willing to answer uh, questions via email because I remember well, several years ago, I had a couple questions about uh, S-Script, the algorithm. And... I was you know, trying to figure something out and I just kept running into a brick wall of not being able to figure it out myself. And finally, I was like, I'm just going to send him an email. And I mean, the worst thing that can happen is he responds back with, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard, or he just doesn't respond back. And any other answer I get other than those two things is a good thing. I, I'm, I'm winning in this exchange. And sure enough, I sent an email and you sent me an email back and you were like, oh yeah, well this, this, I think it was about um, uh, assembly code for the AVX 512 stuff because Intel had been starting to put those instructions into their CPUs. Um, and you responded back really politely and just kind of answered my questions. And I was, I was, it's sad to say, but I was actually surprised because there has been so many times when I have emailed a developer about something and not gotten a response back that getting a response back was, it, it just made my day. And it sometimes happens that people are just busy. Um, so, you know, it, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's going to happen. Sometimes you're not going to get a response. But uh, yeah, I, I find people are uh, generally very, very happy, especially happy to talk about their own work. I, I, I always think back to uh, when I was doing my doctorate. Uh, at one point, I had, um, it, actually, it, dealt, it was relating to binary diffs. Um, I, I had found an old paper about a, a previous method of, of generating binary diffs, uh, and they had a particular data set they were using to um, do their, their benchmarking. And 
I thought, well, I should compare BSDiff against their tool on their own dataset. So uh, I email one of the authors at, at his university email address. And uh, a few hours later, I get a, an email back from Amazon because, in fact, he was no longer a university research professor. He was now a vice president at Amazon. But a VP at Amazon nevertheless responded to a, a question from a university student about his research. Speaking of, of diffs, one of the things in, uh, in BSD now that we often talk about is, of course, Tarsnap and the way that you do diffs for what gets uploaded and what doesn't, because obviously, again, you're trying to save on bandwidth. But to, to not get into the technical details of, of Tarsnap, what caused you to decide, hey, I want to start a backup service. Like, where, where did that come from? Because that seems like there's a lot of steps from just sitting in your living room, you know, watching TV to, I want to start a secure backup service. So can you kind of, kind of fill in the gaps there? So it, it's not a, as big of a step as you might think at first. Um, so 2006, I was the FreeBSD security officer. I was dealing with you know, all of the security advisories that came through FreeBSD. Sometimes I would ask somebody else to actually write the advisory, but you know, it was it was going through my inbox. And I was looking at all of the, the issues we were dealing with at one point. You know, there was send mail issues, there were bind issues, there were open SSL issues. And I was thinking, you know, if anybody gets their hands on my laptop, they're gonna have a field day. Like so many systems around the internet they could break into with all these these you know remote root vulnerabilities and so on. And I thought, wait a minute, if somebody gets their hands on my backups they could break into all these systems. Now, like most people, I wasn't really doing very good backups. You know, you, you, I, I had an external drive and whenever I got around to it, I would plug it in and, you know, wait a few hours while it copied data across. And, and so I, I also had on the back of my mind for a long time, you know, it'd be so nice if I could just do this, do this online, have it run automatically, you know, not need to physically plug something in, unplug it. Of course, if I'm going to do it online, then it needs to be really secure. And so I was, you know, thinking it'd be so nice if there was something out there I could use. And I look around and I thought, there just isn't anything out there. I start asking people I know in the security community, what do you use for backups? Do you know of anything that's secure? And you know, everybody else is saying, you know, there, 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 just, there just isn't anything out there. And then it just hits me, like, cryptography is something that I do. Computer security is something that I do, <laughs> like, and and at this point I I was I was finishing uh, four months of FreeBSD development work uh, that had been paid for by sponsors and you know, looking around at what should I do with my life next. Uh, I was considering going down to work for Google. Um, they offered me a job in in uh, Mountain View doing research, but they were a bit cagey about what exactly they would have me doing there. It was just sort of well. We're sure you'd find something interesting here. You know, not sure I really want to uproot myself and go to a different country for, well, we're sure you'll find something interesting. So I thought, you know, maybe I should do this myself. You know, how long could it take? And a few months, worst case, I spend a few months writing code and then I look, take a job with Google later. Um, well, that was uh, 15 years ago, 14 and a half years ago. Um, but it, it's turned out pretty well. Yeah, that's one thing that I, I love about the people that work in open source is that a lot of the times there's things where it's like, I have a, a problem. I need this problem solved. And of course, you know, we look around to see what other, what, what others have done in that problem. But if we can't find it, 
then of course it falls back on, well, I guess, I guess I'll do it because somebody needs to do it and I can do it. It's one thing that I love about open source is that there, there aren't really any gatekeepers in the way telling you, you know, you can't do this. You're not allowed to do that because the operating system is completely open and we can see everything that's going on. If we get a great idea, the only thing really limiting us is us for not doing it. I mean, yes, it can be challenging. We might have to learn some stuff along the way to be able to accomplish that goal, but there's, Again, there's no gatekeepers stopping us from putting forth that effort to then make whatever we want or to build whatever vision we have. Yeah, in, in many ways, I, I think um, open source is the closest thing there is in software to the world of internet startup companies. Um, I, I keep on hearing people like Paul Graham, um, one founders of Y Combinator, talking about how with startups, there, there's no gatekeepers. If you have a good idea, you just go ahead and do it and... You know, these days, of course, it's really cheap to set up a website. When when, when he did his his startup Viacom in, in the nineties, of course, you know they needed money just to buy a, a server and, and licenses for using SSL and so on. But but these days, yeah, you you can rent a system from from Amazon for a few dollars a month. Um, and so there there's very little in the way of gatekeeping for startups. And uh, yeah, open source. Very much the same. You have a a good idea. You you need something. Again, very common between the two areas. Most of the best startups are are created because the founders need something, and you know, of course, it needs to be more than just the founders. But uh, you know, if, if if you are your own first customer, then well, at least you have one customer. Uh, you're a significant step ahead of, of of the the founders who who start a company that is doing something that they don't personally need and then they need to go and find their first customer. Right. Now, in the same in that vein, um are there things that you see that are being developed right now in FreeBSD specifically or other open source projects that you see and you go, "Okay, that that's a great idea or that's going to be really beneficial." Are there any that jump out uh, to you? The biggest thing that comes to mind is the Cherry project. Okay. So this is um the the work uh centered at University of Cambridge um, on uh, essentially solving the whole issue of memory safety with with using pointers that have information about their their provenance and you know what you can do with them safely um, I my understanding is that in the next couple of years there's going to be arm systems that have this functionality just as you know, as development systems um, I'm I'm really looking forward to those being available and and seeing what we can do with them. Uh, in addition to the the security benefits, um, it, it sounds like there may be some performance benefits as well because it allows them to partition memory space in different ways. Um, you don't need to worry about different processes um, sort of being mapped to the same area of memory. You could just have them different parts of memory and they can't touch each other because their pointers can't touch each other, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I, it, it's not something I am personally involved with, but I, I've been sort of hearing through FreeBSD uh, about the work that's going on for a long time. And uh, I, I think that is going to fundamentally change the way that we do computing, um, at least as far as low-level computing goes. Um, so yes, I, I, I'm very excited about the... The developments there and FreeBSD is at the core of of that work. Um, you know, 
obviously the the that group started with um, capsicum um, in terms of, of dealing with capabilities and that model is is available on a, a range of different operating systems but uh, as far as I know the the cherry work is really just in FreeBSD at this point obviously you know once the hardware is there people will be looking at it on on other systems but FreeBSD has a, a big head start there yeah that sounds really interesting I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to look into that is there anything that again looking at FreeBSD or just generally wider and open source that you see is something that we as the community developers should be focusing on that kind of always gets the backseat that we don't give enough uh, credence to? I, I do feel that FreeBSD needs to do more on the um, desktop and general usability front. Of course, it's a, it's a hard problem to deal with. You know, you're looking at companies trying to build the cheapest possible Wi-Fi chips and you know companies building laptops that will just change which Wi-Fi chip they use from one month to the next based on shaving a few cents off. Um, power management, of course, is is a whole mess because there's you know devices that only have Windows drivers or only get tested on Windows. Um, but I, I feel that I mean you know FreeBSD we we often focus on the server with you know, there's good reasons for that. Obviously, Netflix alone is a, a very large body of servers pushing a very large amount of traffic around the internet. Um, and all of that is running on FreeBSD, of course. But I, I feel that it is important to have the desktop user base and the desktop uh, usability because you kind of need it to get people involved in the first place. You know, if a... If an operating system is only a system that experienced developers and system administrators use, then um, sure, Netflix will probably keep on using FreeBSD because they know it works really well. But you look at WhatsApp, they started using FreeBSD because the founders had used FreeBSD before and they knew how to do how to use it. Um, I, I think in order for the project to be sustainable in the long term, you need ways to get people involved and having something that they can just install and start using is a big, makes a big difference there. Yeah, I am a strong proponent of the concept of dog fooding, um, which I know you know about, but for those that aren't aware, it's that you eat your own dog food. If you're working on an OS like FreeBSD, well, then you use FreeBSD because as a user, you're going to run into those random issues that you'll find that you only find when you use something as a daily driver. Um, I know I actually got involved uh, with PCBSD back in the day because I had met Ken Moore, who was working on the Lumina desktop. And I had met him at a Linux conference because at the time I was a Linux developer. And I really liked what he was doing. So I kind of pitched in and helped him out here and there, did some testing for him. But I was running it on Slackware. He was running it on PCBSD, which was FreeBSD. And I would get bugs that he couldn't reproduce. And he would find bugs that I couldn't reproduce because the way that Qt is built between Linux and FreeBSD is a little different. So after a while, it was like, well, if I'm going to help you with this desktop, I need to be running the same thing you're running so that I can actually help you with the bugs. And when I find stuff, you can confirm them and maybe track them down. And just through that, then got into using PCBSD on a laptop more regularly. Um, and then, of course, started using TrueOS. And that actually eventually led to working at iX Systems for a while. And... I really think there is a lot of importance in you know, the dog fooding concept of if there is 
a way that people can use something as their desktop just casually, they're a lot more likely to then choose the base OS of FreeBSD for a next the project that they have coming up or something that they want to do in their spare time because they're used to it, they're comfortable with it. Um, I, I think this is actually one of the benefits of having FreeBSD avail available in all of the cloud systems. Um, for you know, a, a lot of a lot of people before they start running large scale servers or services like Netflix or WhatsApp, um, they will host their own personal server that maybe holds their website or you know small things they're doing as as sort of toys for themselves. And having FreeBSD available in a system where they can pay a few dollars a month uh, in order to have it running. I think that makes it a lot easier for people to get started than if they need to go out and buy a system that you know maybe costs a few hundred dollars for a, you know a low-end server hardware that they could use, um, or you know renting a physical box somewhere. I don't know if anybody really does that anymore, but you know ha having the these um, virtual servers available for three or four dollars a month, uh, I, I think does make FreeBSD a lot more accessible to people who just want to try it out and see what it's like and learn a bit more about it. And also it, you know, if you have a, a spare box in your, in your, you know, in your house that you're using for some pet project and you then decide, well, I'd like to scale this up a little, having the ability to go to a cloud provider and be able to use FreeBSD as well, you have a seamless transition from what you've been doing locally to now something that you can do on a server somewhere so that other people can access it as well. For me, those kind of things, it's, it's just pulling down the barriers that would get in the way of people being able to do what they want to do. Because, you know, if I've developed something here locally that, that uh, runs on FreeBSD, and then, oh, well, I can only get a Linux server somewhere. Okay, well, does, is this going to build the same way? Do I have to add in other changes? That might be a roadblock for me expanding out what I was working on because uh, I, I just, I don't want to deal with that. I just want to stay and just do this little thing here. So I think pulling down those barriers is really it benefits all of us. Yeah, and, and something I, I would love. Honestly, I've been meaning to do this for four or five years and just never gotten around to it. Uh, but I, I would love to set up some sort of um, FreeBSD desktop in the cloud um, scenario in, in terms of a uh, you know a FreeBSD image in AWS that you can launch that has say KDE installed. You know, gives you a, a nice desktop environment. You can remote desktop into it, uh, and then you know. Even if you're running Windows, you have remote desktop tools. Um, I feel you're rather than telling people, okay, this, here's how you download VirtualBox and, and install FreeBSD inside there. If we could just give people click here to spin up a machine and then remote desktop into it, I, I feel it would be another way that, that people could uh, get experience using FreeBSD in, in something that looks kind of familiar. And to be honest, I, I use KDE because it, it looks like Windows did when I started using FreeBSD. Um, as I say, I, I've been meaning to do this for years and never actually gotten around to it. But someday I might actually do that. If anybody listening wants to do that, uh, drop me an email, I can point you in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, and it's also the benefit of actually being able to give someone a physical hands-on, like even if it's in the, in the cloud, a physical hands-on with the OS to realize, hey, this isn't crazy. Because I know there's, there's a lot of misconception from people on Windows side and even those on Linux that it's, Oh, that BSD stuff is completely different than what I than what I use. And it's like, no, no, actually, it's it's really not. Like, yes, the code is different. Yes, the license is different. But if you sit down at you know at a KDE install on FreeBSD, you're 
going to be able to do all the same things you can do when you sit down at a KDE install on Linux. And even if you have to go to the command line, the user lands all pretty much have the same tools. The flags might be different here or there, but of course the man pages are there so you can look them up. It's not that much of a difference. And I think that there's a perception that it's, oh, it's a completely different OS. It's, it's going to be all different. I, I won't be able to figure it out when that's not the case at all. And, and to be fair, the, the command line does scare people who come from a, a Windows background or a, an OS X background if they haven't done much on the command line, you know, despite OS X being based on, on Unix. Um, for most people, it is just a graphical experience. Um, I, I showed my wife how to install uh, FreeBSD. We got it running inside VirtualBox, and uh, at one point she decided to play with it, and I got a text message from her saying, what does dollar sign mean? Because she managed to log in and she had a shell. And you know, if you're not familiar with the command line, you don't even realize that dollar sign is a prompt which says you need to type something now. So what advice would you give to people who are considering getting into technology or considering getting into uh, open source or FreeBSD? Are there any pointers that you would you would want to pass along as either kind of advice from someone who's who's been down that road or as encouragement? I, I guess it depends to some extent why they want to get involved. Um, you know, there's people who who want to get involved because they just they're curious about things. In which case, I would say just go ahead and start playing with things, and you know, go wherever your curiosity takes you. Um, on the other hand, there's, there's people who want to get involved because they want a better job. You know, they, they know there's a lot of money to be earned in technology, um, particularly as a developer. Um, and they just, you know, they don't know much about computers, but they know if they can learn about computers, then they can get a good job. Um, for them, um, I guess probably these days the, the easiest place to get started is with um, websites that just let you start programming in your web browser. Um, I, I honestly can't remember the names of them offhand, but I, I know there's several out there. Um, uh, I think Replit is one of them. REPL.IT, I think it is. Um, but uh, that, I think, would give people a good start on the whole concept of writing code and, and having it do something. Um, for, for If you're just getting started with, with computing, with, with writing code, the operating system doesn't really matter that much. Um, you, know, you, you won't be, honestly, you won't be able to write any code for FreeBSD until you're quite experienced with software development and you know how to write code in C. Um, so I would not suggest that people sort of jump straight into FreeBSD as the, their first experience trying to write code. Um, I suppose maybe if someone's a, a, a very experienced software, uh, a very experienced system administrator, um, and they, they know what all these tools are supposed to do, then maybe they can sort of start looking at the source code and figure out, you know, what does this source code do, which is what I understand the program does. But you know, for someone who's, who's just new to technology, I think getting started with writing short programs is is the way to go, and once you you understand writing short programs, then you can start putting together larger programs, and so I've got the whole concept of structured development, where you you know 
typically in, in a, a program, a larger program, you, you've got your main and then you've got libraries that you call for various routines. Um, I, I think it's important for people to understand that this whole idea of having code that gets reused, um, it's important. I mean, honestly, this is one of the most common problems I see with new software developers is that they don't have this concept of writing a library which they will reuse in the future and you know not just making it the way that they need right now but thinking through how could this be used in other ways to, so that they they can write it at the right level of generality so sometimes people go too far they write like they, they write routines that are massively over generalized uh, but as you get experience, you can sort of learn your way towards the right way of structuring programs. Um, but obviously, that only works when you're working on the larger programs. Um, for someone who's new to computing, yeah, just, just writing very small programs is the way to get started. One of the things that I love about the open source software model is that it allows you know me to be able to take someone else's software that maybe far more complicated than I would ever be able to write, but it allows me to be able to, to make you know, a small change, to be able to add something, and to be able to then become a part of, of that project. And for me, when I first started to actually get into programming, it was really empowering to know that, hey, I can actually do this. I can, I can make the change. I can have an effect on something that I'm using. And I mean, we touched earlier on the no gatekeepers aspect of open source. One of the people that I interviewed prior on this show, Scott McCarty, he's a, he's a software engineer for Red Hat. When I spoke with him, he mentioned that you know, he grew up in a very poor family. And for him, he saw you know, computers and getting into engineering as a way to get a better job than what he would just be able to find locally where he grew up. And that's one of the other things that I really love about open source is that in many ways, it levels the playing field, so to speak, in that it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what kind of upbringing you have, have had. If, if you are willing to put forth the effort, you can, you can do something. And even if it's small, it can lead to something bigger over time. I think it was the, I, I may be wrong. Someone will correct me if I am, but I believe it was the WhatsApp developer. The original developer of it was actually homeless. And he learned how to program and he just slowly started working on this project that then ended up becoming a much larger project. And then of course, then got bought by Facebook, but it started with a guy who effectively, if, if you look at it objectively, had nothing going for him, but the willingness and the commitment to do something. And then because he had the ability to do something himself, he was able to produce a small thing that then grew into something larger that has benefited millions and millions of people around the world. Yeah, I'd say there's um, so certainly there's less in the way of barriers to entry, but I I feel that there is there's one critical issue with with open source, which is it's not enough to write code; you need to make people aware of it. Um, you, know, you you might fix a problem yourself, but you need to send it in and convince whoever's maintaining that code base 
um, to to take your pet. So th there is a barrier. It's not particularly a technical barrier, but there's a barrier for people who uh, lack social skills or uh, the confidence needed to actually communicate with developers and say, here's some code, you know, here's, here's why what I've done is useful, why it's correct. Um, as, a, as a group, I feel sometimes we're not welcoming enough uh, in that, I mean, Linus Torvalds is famous for his rants about, you know, why everything that people do is completely wrong. Um, obviously, you know, he, he's, he's mostly dealing with very senior developers in the context that he's working, but uh, I feel that there's a risk when we're dealing with new developers that if if we're too harsh in judging their patches, and honestly, most of them are probably going to be wrong when they, they're first submitted, um, people may just say, oh, I, I guess this isn't really for me. I guess I'm not good at it. And they'll just go away. So I, 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 I whereas there may be equally uh, new, equally young software developers who write you know, equally bad patches, but because of their backgrounds, are really confident. And they will just keep on coming back to you. And, and this has happened to me. Um, you know, people coming back to me week after week after week with revised versions of their patches. And then, you know, after three months or something of going back and forth with them, pointing out everything that's wrong every time they send me a patch, then finally we've got something good. Um, so I, I, I think that confidence um i mean i, I mentioned earlier uh, how how people uh, most people are wary to send emails to developers whereas you know at a conference they're, they're more more comfortable talking to them um I, I i think yeah new developers uh should be more willing to bug us you know you you have a patch send it in and, and if someone writes back and says no this patch is wrong don't take that as meaning I never want to hear from you again. Take it as meaning fix a patch and send me a new version. Do you think that as a community, we have gotten better or worse in that aspect with on that kind of interpersonal level from the way things used to be, say, 10, 15 years ago versus now? There's definitely more awareness of that issue. Um, whether we've gotten better or worse, um, I think we've probably gotten better. Um, it, it's, it's hard to say, you know, obviously, you know, most of these, these conversations are between individual contributors or people who want to be contributors and individual developers. You know, I'm, I'm not reading everybody's email, so you know, I, I, I can't comment on all the conversations that go on in that, in that respect, but I, I, I think the fact that there's more awareness, uh, certainly makes things better in general. And, you know, as a FreeBSD community, we, we are generally aware that we, we need new blood. We need to encourage more people to contribute. So I, I, I certainly hope that, that we're improving. Um, the, the one place that I'm, I'm always concerned about, and I know a lot of other developers are concerned about, is people submit patches to Bugzilla, um, or, or Nats, as it was before we switch over to Bugzilla, and they just sort of sit there forever. Um, we don't have enough people looking through there and, and fishing out the patches or, or, I mean, sometimes there's, there's good patches, which, which people do pull out, but 
there are very few developers who have the patience to find a bad patch and then work with a contributor to make it turn it into a good patch. Um, so if there's a, if there's any advice for new contributors here, I'd say don't just fire off a, a bug report and leave it there. Um, just go go ahead and bug people. Um, you know, tell them, hey, I filed this bug report. Nothing's happening with it. Uh, it, it, it touches files that you've worked on recently. Any chance you could look at it? Um, you know, some some developers will just write back and say, oh, sorry, I'm busy. Or they might not write back at all. But uh, I, I would generally encourage people to just go ahead and send an email. Are there Are there any things that looking back at yourself when you were first getting involved, are there any things that you wish you had known then that you know now? Like if you could have sit down and have a conversation with yourself, the you know, yourself say 10, 15 years ago, would there, like what type of things would you, what bits of knowledge would you pass along to your younger self? Hmm. Um, write libraries for yourself. Um, I mean, I, 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 I very deliberately curate a library. Um, it's a, in GitHub called libc Persifer. Uh, uh, the name simply because I, I realized that I was sharing a bunch of code between different projects and you know, it, I, I should just collect it in one place so that I can make it easier to keep it in sync between the, the different projects. Um, I'm not saying it. Everybody should, should name code after themselves. Uh, as Linus commented, uh, only the most egotistical people do that. Um, but... Uh, I, I do think that I am a better developer now that I very deliberately curate a set of of code that I hold on to and reuse between projects rather than doing it haphazardly. Of, and, you know, I mean, it all originated because I, I would be writing a, one project and think, oh, yeah, yeah I, I wrote code like this in that other project. Let's see if I can find it. Um, but, yeah, if I had done it deliberately from the, from the start, I would have saved myself time and effort uh, of, uh, you know, reusing and, and you know, modifying, you know, having, having mildly different versions, having versions with different bugs fixed in each version. Um, so that, that would have made me more productive and, and saved time if I had done that. Um, read the standards, um, by which I mean C, C99, or C11, if you want these days. Um, POSIX, uh, a lot of developers just sort of go ahead and write code and, oh, yeah, it seems to work. Whereas, you know, if you want, if you want to make sure that your code works, well, okay, it, even, even relying on the standards doesn't make sure it works. Um, in, in my library, I have a whole directory with workarounds for operating systems which are not POSIX compliant. Uh, at one point, I, in fact, I still, I think I do still have something in there for working out around a bug in FreeBSD. Um, although I think it's a bug that we fixed a couple of years back. Um, but if at least you know what should happen, according to the standard, then when you see something that doesn't work, uh, you, you can figure out, you know, is it your fault or is it the operating system's fault or the compiler's fault? I, I've got workarounds for broken compilers in there as well. Um, and you're not just doing this you fumble around until it seems to work. Um, Test-driven development is popular in some circles, and it is not something that I'm a fan of. Um, because it, it, 
I find that it tends to lend itself to this fumble around until it seems to work, until it passes the tests. Uh, I, I much prefer standards-driven development. Um, you know, look at the code and convince yourself that if the system obeys the standards, then this code will work. And once you are convinced that it, it should work, then run the tests. If you, I, I, I'm reminded of um, machine learning systems where the, the way that you always do it is you, you take your, your input data set and you divide it in half. You use one half to train the system, and then you use the other half to verify that the system works. Because it's easy to have a system, if you train it on all of your data, then it will work perfectly for your data, and it will be completely wrong for everything else. Uh, so if you're going to do test-driven development, then I would say take your tests and divide them in half, write your code looking only at half of the tests, and then run the other half of the tests. And if it doesn't pass all your tests, then it means you got something really wrong, and you, know, you, you need to be looking more carefully at the code because your, your methodology is not working. Well, Colin, that is that's some that's definitely good advice, and I can I'm, I'm sad to say it's some advice that I probably should take myself. So, uh, thank you for for passing that along. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me today and to talk. It's it's been a it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks again. Thank you. It's been a good chat. <laughs> <laughs>